Welcome to season four of the Dynamic Leader podcast. My name is Shelley Flett. I believe that leadership at its core requires strong relationships, the ability to sit in a space of genuine curiosity and the courage to build capability in others. I believe great leaders are lifelong learners, and so my intention is to help you to continue your learning journey by bringing you new perspectives from experts in their field. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. I feel like the conversations I've been having or the topics that I've been talking about over the last 12 months have really um, alternated between Um, getting the work done and getting the most out of people, delivering results, and then kind of swinging over to looking after yourself. And so I feel like the, um, you know, topics are continuing to go in that fashion where we do a little bit on, um, you know, how do you get the best out of people versus how do you look after and nurture yourself? And so today's conversation is around beating uh, beating burnout um, and finding balance and, um, it's a really interesting topic. I know there's a lot of different uh, approaches to this. Um, I think that um, there might still be a little bit of ignorance, although I think that's probably um, disappearing uh, over the past few years. But I have a renowned um, mindfulness and performance coach, uh, Melo Calaco, joining me today. Uh, he teaches others how to stay energized, how to perform at their best and how to conquer burnout um, and has even written a book around the topic. He's got over three decades of experience. Um, his results-based work is grounded in neuroscience, in mindfulness, in human behavior, leadership training and some other unique tools Um, and his lessons also uniquely draw from his life cycling and trekking more than 30,000 kilometers across five continents Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah really looking forward to this conversation thank you Mello for joining us thank you Shelley great to be here thank you for the invitation so um burnout (laughs) Mm mm-hmm how do you define that in 2023? Big word at the moment, isn't it? It's sort of a word that's being thrown around a lot. Um, Definition-wise, you know, the, the WHO define it, you know, very well. In 2019, they actually revised it for the 11th time, and they, they keep revising the the, the actual um, definition of it. It used to be called a medical condition. Now it's called a syndrome. So, um, And it's basically a syndrome conceptualized by unmanaged workplace stress so that's what they that's what they define it as um obviously we can argue that is it is it only workplace stress that actually causes burnout or is it you know other stresses um and there's usually three main characteristics that actually categorize burnout number one is that absolute feeling of like exhaustion like Mm -hmm. absolutely depleted that sort of I'm done, I'm exhausted, I can't keep going sort of feeling. So that's number one. Number two is that feeling of disconnect. So you're feeling disconnected with the people around you, feeling disconnected with your team in your workplace, disconnected with your family, maybe even a bit negative and cynical. So in that way, you're feeling negative towards things, moaning a bit more than you used to, cynical towards other people. So that's number two. And number three is just that lack of efficacy, so lack of efficiency in the work that you do and you know things that would normally be quite easy for you to perform they get harder and harder so that's the three main characteristics of of how who define it but also i think those three are pretty accurate to be honest yeah do you um 
do you see one, do you see kicking off with one and the others come? Do you see, like, do you, I mean, I, I can relate to all three of those, mm. you know, exhaustion. I almost think sometimes the, I'm a little bit tired with things. So I start to pull back and then mm. I'm, it feels like Groundhog Day. Like I pull yeah. back and I tend to pull back on, on the things that actually give me joy and help me feel connected. Uh, and then it's just like, well, now I'm just going through the motions. But what's your thought yeah. on that? Yeah, often when we are stressed and overwhelmed in many ways, the very things that we need the most, like our self-care practices, are the things we let go of, unfortunately. Mm. And a lot of people do confuse burnout with stress or overwhelm in many ways. But, you know, burnout is the consequence of not managing your stress over a prolonged period in many ways. So, you know, when you say pull back, if you did pull back and then did some self-care practices, let's say, you know, you went for a, a nice walk or you, you know, had a nice meal or went for a weekend away, chances are you'd recharge from that and you'd feel mm. you know, ready and energized for Monday morning again, ready to go. But with burnout, it doesn't matter how much sleep you get. It doesn't matter how much rest you get. You won't recover. So you've, you've actually depleted the resources so much. So, you know, often the consequence of unmanaged stress over time, it's cumulative <clears throat> and the lack mm. of self-care over time is cumulative. And the end result is burnout in many ways. Um, I've heard that it can take years to come back from burnout. What's your um, What's your experience in working this space? Depending on the yeah you know, the intensity of it, in many ways. So in the work that I do, I, I work with it a lot. Especially in the last few years, there's been more burnout. You know, over the pandemic period and and over the last few years than I've ever seen before, to be honest. Normally, I meet people in that sort of chronic stress overstimulated mode, so it's a much quicker path to recovery. That could just take weeks. Um, setting up some self care habits, setting up some mindfulness practices that can take weeks to recover from. But the further they are down the spectrum of burnout, the longer the period can take. I've had clients that have taken years and still not fully recovered. Mm. You know, some that have actually fully burnt out. One of my client examples that I share is um, you know, one guy that was working across multiple time zones, um, working in you know, the US, UK and Australia, you know, working on the aeroplane, working at the Qantas lounge, working when he got to the destination and his body said, uh-uh, I'm not doing this anymore. So mentally he felt strong, mentally he felt like he could keep going, but his body said no. His body stopped producing hormones, stopped producing testosterone. He was in intensive care for a number of weeks. So that took a long time to recover. And I don't think he's actually fully recovered, to be honest. I think he's functional again, but Mm. not fully recovered. So it can take, you know, that's an extreme case. That can take years. But quite often, once we sort of reset ourselves and reset our self-care practices, start sleeping well, start eating well, doing hobbies, doing meditation, it can take a period of a few months um, Mm. sometimes, sometimes longer, sometimes more. The the thing about burnout is it's not really that easily defined. We talk about stages of burnout sometimes. We talk about stages of grief, let's say, but they're not that like step by step. You know, there can be a bit of a roller coaster. You might have a few days where you feel good, but then you slip back a bit and then you have a few days where you don't feel good. So it's a, it's not a one size fits all. I wish it was that clean that you could say, oh, it's going to take you a month to recover and you'll be fine. <laughs> but it, 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 there's so many factors in play. Uh, it's so true. If I think about my, and I don't, I, I actually do. Yeah, I think I experienced burnout at the end of 2019. So, mm-hmm. you know, you talking about the the plane example, it was totally, it was me. Um, and I remember sitting 
strangely next to a colleague of mine who I'd been trying to catch up with for ages and we ended up being on the same flight next to each other um and and he was just reading the paper and I said how are you doing that <laughs> you run your own business like um and then that's how I got introduced to my my EA Shay who's a, an absolute lifesaver but mm. um it was sitting next to him and sort of observing like, how are you doing this differently? But also I think that year I'd come from, I think I did over 40 flights and, um, you yeah. know, mum of three and, you know, trying to build my business, et cetera, and just really kind of hit this wall. Um, mm. And it was, it was, I think I'd already been doing a lot of the work around self-care and that almost self-awareness because I think you've yes. got to have before, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, before yes. you can really step into that self-care place, you, there's got to be a bit of awareness around who mm. you are and and that kind of thing. 100%. You hit the nail on the head there. The first step is awareness. The first step is self-awareness. And you know, as a leader, as an you know, entrepreneur, as you know, someone working in this high-performing roles, sometimes we just get so carried away by the busyness of everything that we don't notice the signs. We don't notice anything around. So the very first step is self-awareness, understanding when you are feeling tired, what do I need to do? Understanding when you're feeling stressed, what do I need to do? Overwhelmed, what do I need to do? Um, when I interviewed people for the book, so the, the book Beating Burnout, Finding Balance, I interviewed many people around about 200 um, leaders and executives and CEOs. 90% of them didn't realize they were burning out until it was too late. 90%. So that self-awareness piece is a huge one. The other 10% was divided between people that realized it, but they didn't have the tools or techniques to get out of it, or they just kept pushing on through. They just kept going and you know, at this unrelenting pace. So the very first step, what I often say is you can't change what you don't notice. You know, so sort of sitting there, what, what am I noticing in my body? I'm feeling stressed. I've got tight shoulders. I've got tight jaw. I'm not sleeping at night. I'm not eating well. All of these yeah. things, you know, I'm not exercising. So the first step is self-awareness, 100%. Do you think that, um, you know, people who are really, if I can say high-strung, but like the um, the go, 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 like the pace, like the, like don't like to sit still and they, mm. they carry this almost label of that's just who I am. How do yes. you how do you slot awareness into that if if they've actually identified with some of the characteristics which will lead them down the path? Mm. What does awareness look like for them? Yesterday I did a session for the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners actually, and they're a classic case of this where they talked about that their their comrades, their colleagues, everybody's working eighty hour weeks, and it's sort of their normal, and they, and they feel that that's that's a normal thing. The awareness, the collective awareness around that is like we have to do this unrelenting pace we have to work at this you know 24 7 sort of always on attitude so i try to shift that mindset as, as much as i can to you know say to give yourself permission to stop give yourself permission to slow down occasionally because if you stop for 10 minutes or five minutes or 20 minutes and have a break your next two to three hours will be far more productive it does I, it's often met with some resistance at first but um, once they actually experience it and feel it and actually do take a little break take renewal breaks throughout the day slow down a little bit punctuate their day with periods of rest they feel that they can perform far better and they can also get a lot more done in less time so mm. you know working 80 hours does not mean productive many of those hours are, are wasted hours because your you know your cognition's waning your you know 
decision making skills your problem solving skills your critical thinking skills are are waning so it's actually not efficient way to work what if that's how they bill that's how they go there's a sorry you know what if that's how they bill like if that's how so i'm thinking billable hours exactly yeah 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 so yeah again that's a it's a mindset shift yes um if you're billing 40, 40, 40 hours versus 80 hours versus 60 hours, it's a, it's a mindset of like, what are, what are those hours worth? Like the value of the work that you're doing in those hours um, in many ways. Mm, it's interesting because I um I recently um delivered a workshop at, at a conference with, uh, it was in the accounting space. Yes. But I know that, you know, I, I know accounting um, bills by minutes. I know that law does as well. And I was talking to uh a lawyer friend of mine who said, you know, the t- this t- concept of time has to change. Mm. Um, and so sometimes it's the, you know, even if you do have the awareness, it's I'm in a system that is like it has been like that, you know, it's legacy. It, yes. it's, so is there change that do we need to disrupt the system? Yeah. Because- and, and in many ways, the value of the work that you do and, and the outcome comes that you actually get so yeah so you could work you could work two hours of focused hard time and get the same result as working six hours of unfocused work in many ways so you know working on that quality as long as you're getting the object objectives that you're looking for i also work in a fair few law firms too and i understand that sort of time is money in many ways and they've got back-to-back cases and you know very busy in that world but once they value their own worth and their own time and the value of you know the quality of the work they can do in less time it's a bit of a, a mind shift so yes we do need to disrupt that in many ways and mm. yeah self-awareness is that first piece definitely in in many ways that awareness of hey i'm working too many hours here i'm not getting the rest i'm not getting the renewal breaks you know the second piece after self-awareness is actually the ability to self-regulate mm. the ability to have some tools in your toolkit you know, when you are feeling stressed, when you are under the pump, when you're trying to get so much work done, what can I do to self-regulate? And that might be a breath practice, a breathing practice that helps you, you know, deactivate the stress. It might be having a little break, going for a walk, going for a walk around the block. Or it might be removing yourself from the busyness and, you know, just changing environment. So the second step is that ability to self-regulate. As a leader, as a high performer, if you can develop the ability to self-regulate, you can be more present with your people, you can be more patient with your people. You can you know, lead better. So there's a definitely a need for that self-regulation piece. How how quickly? So you develop this self-awareness, or you start to become aware of you know some of the things that might be depleting your resources or not making you as effective mm-hmm. as you want to do, and it and then you go, okay, well let's move into self-regulation mode. Um, is you know how quickly do you see? And I I know this is a it it depends, but yeah. yeah, is it something if I'm going to put in place some of these practices, is there a reasonable time where I can go, well, I see I'm seeing the the return on this investment. I'm actually seeing this payoff. It can be quite quick, actually. It can be quite and some some people are surprised that you know, once they do start some of the mindfulness practices that I teach, 
the effect can be quite immediate actually so i, I teach um, sometimes what's called a 90 second breath break it's one of my first sort of points of call when i'm teaching you know, a busy ceo or a busy executive and by the way i often don't use the word mindfulness or meditation uh, because often they have a bit of skepticism around that i'll say something like hey let's go refocus or let's go reset or you know let's go you know improve our performance so um I've learned very quickly that you know when I used to run seminars and workshops that had meditation or mindfulness in the titles, people wouldn't come to it because they have that preconception on oh, it's going to be some sort of woo thing. Yeah, I changed the title literally to you know high performance habits or something like that, and I'd get far more people coming to the sessions. Yeah, so realizing that mindfulness in many ways is. Well, the self-awareness piece is the first piece that we need as a leader, actually. I interviewed a lot of leaders um, and in the work that I do, and I asked them the question, like, what's the number one skill or asset that you need you know, to be a high-performing leader? And I'd get a variety of different answers, but the most common one was self-awareness, like, like self-awareness. And I asked the follow-up question, like, when are you at your best? When are you, like, at your best as a leader? And the follow-up to that is when I'm fully present. So what does it take to be fully present? You know, that takes looking after yourself emotionally, physically, mentally. It takes all those um, assets of self-care that we talked about there to be fully present with your people. And the best compliment you could ever give your people is your full attention, you know, your full attention and be fully present with them. Did I stray off the topic there? Did I stray off the question there? Um, or we, oh, it's just... I don't know, but it's prompted me to ask another one. Um, and yeah. sometimes we do stray off and I listen to it and I'm like, oh, damn, we didn't actually get to it. It <laughs> doesn't matter. We'll go where the conversation yeah, goes. Yeah, exactly. But, it, you know, it's making me think about, um, you know, this the concept of um, are, we, are we more prone to, to burnout when we are, so if I think about being present and our ability to be present, yeah. I think about the concept of time. And I think about, you know, if I can use um, Carl Jung's meta program in time versus through time. So in time is I'm in the moment, I'm experiencing it. I don't actually have awareness or I'm not thinking about what's to come. And then through time, which is I have, I know what's going to be, I know where I need to be this afternoon. I know exactly when I have to leave in order to create the buffer. And, you know, I'm planning things out and I'm, mm. I'm consciously, I'm conscious of what's ahead all the time. Um, and that we have, we generally have a preference for one over the other. Do mm. you find that people who have a higher preference for through time, i.e. they're thinking about the future, are more prone to burnout or is it different? It can be in many ways. So it's great to have vision. It's great to you know look forward and project into the future. But the only time that actually exists is the now in many ways, and you and you can only operate in the now. Mm. You know, so research says that we are the happiest when we are the most present. You know, when you're doing the task that you're actually doing, you know, and it's good to have some forward projection within that. But the only time that exists that you can actually cope with and that can, you can actually have control over is what you are doing right now. So if you're working on a big project, let's say, and you know, you're know you really you know, knee deep in it, but you're freaking out about the three things that you still have to do next week or next month and you know the all the other outcomes that you need, all the deadlines that you need to meet, then that's not a healthy way to work either because it, it will only create anxiety in many ways. Often when we think about future scenarios and, and maybe future deadlines that might be looming or some of the what-if scenarios, it's out of our control. Mm. and 
it will create it can create anxiety so it can create not being present with what you're doing which then can lead to anxiety and uncertainty is it taxes the resource systems of your body and mind and then you're no longer present so um and that's where these practices and getting back to i just i just triggered back to what your what your question was before there around how long does it take you know once you start initiating these practices to feel that you know self-regulation it can be like i said if you stopped let's say you're on a big project and you're working very hard and you're losing your cognition you're starting to think about you know the deadline coming up looming if you stopped for 90 seconds and did a a breathing practice let's say deactivated the stress that's associated with those future catastrophizing thoughts became present again with what you're doing and reset your attention again your next two hours or three hours will be more productive so you can get immediate results from some of these self-regulation techniques you feel them immediately you know some of the people that i that i coach i I ask them to look at their morning routine. You know, are they someone that wakes up in the morning and gets a telephone out and starts looking at the emails, you know, the, their work emails, already we waking up reactively in, you know, they haven't even left their bedroom yet and they're already like stressed out. And the rest of the day, chances are, would, you know, be in that reactive mode. But mm. if you started your, started your day with, let's say, a gentle walk and then a, a meditation practice and took your time to have a nice breakfast and, you know, enter your day mindfully, with some of these you know, techniques there, you have more control over your day and chances are your the rest of your day will flow well with more presence. Every, everything you say resonates with me so well and um, today's conversation couldn't be better timed. Um, I've, I've had really bad night's sleep for the past probably five or six days, lots going on. This morning I had a business breakfast that started at um, 6.45 and that's fine. I'm a morning person, but I, I, my part of my morning routine is go to the gym, um, do some mindfulness, do some journaling. Um, But it meant I didn't want to, it was like, I can't do all three of those practices. So which one am I going to do? And gym always trumps the other two, but I set my alarm for 4.45 and no kidding. I think I ran out of my bed (laughs) <laughs> when my alarm went off and I thought, <laughs> I thought for what purpose, like, what am I doing? Like I got up mm. so quickly and I've got into a habit of not checking anything, but I I sort of think my discipline to my practice of starting the day in the way that I want, I don't, I, I think I've lost sight of something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then you'd be hard on yourself. You know, if you don't do those practices, you know, sometimes you have to have a bit of leeway sometimes. If you, if you do have an unusual reason to get up in the morning to catch an early morning flight or something like that, you know, be kind to yourself. Yeah. You know, be kind to yourself and don't be so hard on yourself. Sometimes adding more stress, sometimes going to the gym can be stressful. It's adding more stress to the body, you know, yeah. first of all. And, it, yeah, it does feel great after you exercise. But if it's something you can't fit in, you know, be realistic. You're probably better off in this scenario to stop and pause mm-hmm. and do a a short meditation practice or mindfulness practice than trying to rush out the door and then, you know, <laughs> rush to the next meeting and the next meeting and the next meeting. And it yeah. just keeps, has a snowball effect. I, I think it's such great reflection because if I could do this morning again, I would have got up, I would have done my mindfulness practice. I would have done my journaling and then I would have gone to a breakfast. 
nice <laughs> yeah it's, exactly it's um it's good to have those points to reflect i do want to talk a little bit more about mindfulness it's something that um you know has been meditation i think it was maybe 10 years ago and yes. i know now more and more we're using mindfulness actually even probably 12 years ago i think i was introduced to the concept and i remember um a, a colleague that i worked with she goes she said oh, there's this um, really great group meditation that's at the monastery that's not far from where both of us lived. Yes. Um, and, you know, you should go check it out. I was like, oh, that sounds great. So what do you do? She goes, oh, you just go in and it's this it's this meditation space. And yeah. I was like, oh, it sounds like fun. Now, I hadn't actually, I had not done anything outside of, you know, the, the guided practices mm-hmm. where I'm walking through the forest and all of that kind of thing. And I really, really loved it. And so I got there and it was, um, and I sat down and it was very quiet and there was nothing and it wasn't guided and everyone was sitting there. And within 20 minutes, I had crawled out and was in a ball on the floor having a fairly serious panic attack. Wow. Um, and it was like in hindsight, I was really low awareness of what yes. I was actually doing to myself and really running on this very much in my headspace on yes. adrenaline. Um, but it was such a terrible experience. Did your mind get busy? Did it? Did it get busy with everything and everything just oh. surfaced? And this is what I want to, I'd love you yeah. to kind of talk about. Cause you mentioned like the minute you shut, the minute you stop, mm. all this stuff happens. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when, um, when you off, often when you do stop, especially as a high performer, you know, in that second or third lockdown that we had here in Melbourne, in Victoria, I got a lot of calls from CEOs, executives and, whole range of people saying Melo I I need your help now like they normally wouldn't reach out to me because they're always busy on this fast moving treadmill but Mm -hmm. because they had to actually stop and introspect a little bit and be with their own thoughts and be with themselves and slow down not all of them liked what they saw basically and it's like so how can I help so in many ways mindfulness you know when we do stop often what happens when we do stop and we're not plugged into something so we're not listening to a podcast or a or an app of some sort, and we're just being with our thoughts, our mind gets busy. Things surface, things come up because it gives it time for that processing of your thoughts to come through. And sometimes we don't know what to do with those thoughts. Sometimes they you know, flick us into the future, creating anxiety, or they might flick us into the past and you know, create a bit of depression or rumination. And, and so practicing mindfulness helps you to be an observer of your thoughts rather than let your thoughts carry you away. So, you know, thoughts are just thoughts. That's all they are. You know, the big thing I teach is like, you are not your thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts. It's whether you empower those thoughts or not. It's it's <laughs> it's that very concept that can be mm. a, a massive, like, saying it now that I get it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, great. But the, the it was a massive leap that I am not my thoughts. Mm. Like, even that was enough to send me into panic. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> if I am not my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I work in psychiatric clinics also. So I work in a few psychiatric clinics and often, you know, I run programs, mindfulness programs in there, six-week programs. And often when I meet the person for the first time and they say to me, I'm anxious or I'm depressed or I'm stressed, as soon as they say I am plus the word, I'm anxious, it means they're identifying with their thoughts. They've become yeah. their thoughts. So you can say something like, I'm having an anxious moment right now, 
like it's happening now, but it's not me. It's just a thought. That's all it mm -hmm. is. So once we can separate the thought from the identity, that's the first part, which is not, it's easier said than done, of course, but you know, the more we practice it and the more you practice mindfulness, the better you get at it. The, the mm -hmm. spaces between the thoughts becomes bigger. So you'll, you'll have a thought, let's say it's a planning thought. Oh yeah, that's a planning thought. I'm thinking about the future. And then there's a little space and then the next thought will pop up as another thought, maybe the shopping or whatever you need to do. So you get these thoughts, but you don't identify with them. You just observe them and let mm -hmm. them go. And then the more you do this, the bigger the space between the thoughts. And in many ways, if you ask me what mindfulness is great at or what meditation is great at, I've been practicing meditation for about 30 years mm -hmm. and have not missed a day, honestly, I've not missed a single day. And what it does, it gives me space. It gives me space between a stimulus and a response. Mm. You know, so let's say you're in the workplace and somebody fires fires you up and says a comment that you know upsets you. Instead of reacting in a reactive way and you know snapping back, that space it's only a short space. It can just be a few seconds, but it gives you space to re respond mindfully instead mm. of reactively. So the more you meditate, the more you practice this, the bigger that space gets. It's kind of like a muscle that you're, mm. you're building. So your mindfulness practice is building the muscle so that in the actual conversation, you just flex your muscle, essentially. Mm. It's attention training in many ways. So mindfulness in, in other ways, another word for it is attention training. You're training your attention to be present, to be mm. with that person, to really listen to them and ask yourself, are you really listening or are you coming into your thoughts again and, and you know, coming from your own experience as, as opposed to experiencing the moment. So attention training in many ways. And, and people's, unfortunately, in this modern, fast world that we live in, people's attention spans are very low and they're very reactive. So conversely, if you, if you actually, um, in contrast, if you strengthen the amygdala part of the brain, which is the reactive part of the brain, the stress center by working in this stressful way working long hours you know not taking breaks and all those things you make that stronger actually so you actually strengthen your ability to be reactive you strengthen your ability to stress more so mindfulness training reverses that equation it deactivates the amygdala the stress center it down regulates it and it fires up the prefrontal cortex which is all about problem solving decision making logical analytical thinking emotional mm -hmm. regulation, all of these things are happening in the front part of the brain, which is a far better way to operate, right? That is fascinating. I've never heard that before. And immediately I go, do you have withdrawals from if you when the transition from the back to the front? <laughs> like <laughs> the sweats and the, you know, the like is there well, a yes. withdrawal from that? It's like any addiction in the way. It's addictive to work in that fast, unrelenting pace. There's an addiction to it. You feel like you're busy running around the office or you're busy you know, working. There's an addiction to that. So you do have withdrawal. Sometimes you feel like, am I doing enough? Like, am, am I actually working hard enough? Work shouldn't be like good flow work. Like when you're in that flow state and you're working at, at your best and fully present and you know, ticking off your tasks and doing those things, it shouldn't be an effort. It should be mm. effortless. Mm. And mindfulness practice helps you to have this effortless flow. Athletes describe it really well, being in that flow state, you know, when everything just seems easy. I coach a lot of athletes also, and they describe it as just, gee, that was easy. It was a breeze. It was just so easy. It was because you're fully present and you're not you know, in the future, in the past, and addicted to that sort of stressful, reactive behavior. So can I ask if... Please. 
there is a withdrawal and let's say we've not really done much in the mindfulness attention training space that, um, and I'm going to draw on your, how you kind of started into this is, um, is it, is it beneficial for some of us to start attention training while doing? So you started off with martial Mm. arts, which is, which is mindful, but doesn't require everything to stop. It's, can, like, mm, yeah, I'm with can you. Can you hear I'm more about you. that? Yeah, so so when it comes to mindfulness practice, there's two main practices that that I that I share, and it's it's common. So first of all, is it's the formal practice, which is actually stopping, pausing, you know, closing your eyes and doing some sort of practice. You know, it might be 90 second breath break, it might be five minutes, it might be 10 minutes or 20 minutes. I typically do two lots of 20 minutes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then I do little snack ones. So before any meeting, I do little 90 second breath breaks before a podcast or a seminar. I'll do another you know, two minutes, a little, little short one. So that's called the formal practice where you physically stop. The other practice is called a non-formal practice. This is where you are doing still. So you might be you know, going for a walk. You might be going for a bike ride. You might be showering. All those things that you do in the day mindlessly in default mode. You know, Think about you know all the things you did this morning let's say got out of bed rushed to the gym you had a shower brush your teeth but we often do it in this default mode we don't pay attention to it mm. so when it comes to attention training and mindfulness training we can actually be more mindful of the things you are doing for example eating eating is a great example you, you eat four or five times per day but often we eat in front of the computer or we eat while we're doing something else we eat while we're distracted so if you just stopped and mindfully ate mm. It's another way of training your attention. So I often will say to people, especially starting out, like choose one thing in your week and do it more mindfully. Just one. You know, whether it's showering, whether it's walking, whether it's commuting, whether it's eating. And mm-hmm. once they realize, wow, I didn't realize how not present I was when I was doing those things. So it's a again a form of attention training. So yeah, yeah. doing doing and practicing is a real and both of them are equally powerful, by the way. Both of them will train your attention. If you can't focus on being in the shower for five minutes, how can you focus on you know being in your workplace for an hour or two hours? So it yeah. trains your attention to be focused on one thing. It's actually a lot harder um, to, like, it, it's an easy concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I've tried to be mindful in the shower, I end up cleaning the shower. <laughs> 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 still getting busy um the mindful eating drives me bonkers it is because <laughs> it is also something that i've played with <laughs> like i don't have time to be mindful while i'm eating it takes too long <laughs> does it take more time well what I, the practice that Are i heard eating? about which i really liked was when you're eating put the food in your mouth put your cutlery down and just mm. do one thing at a time, like just experience the food in your mouth. And what I realize is that I'm like shoveling yeah. a fork in, into my mouth and I'm chewing while I'm preparing the fork it. again. So I've like got eating into <laughs> this like really efficient. Um, yeah. Hard. It does yeah. take longer. And most people will be doing that and answering an email at the same time or sitting yeah. on their computer <laughs> on their telephone. So they're actually training themselves to be distracted. Research says if you eat in front of the computer, you get hungry about 20 minutes later and you you crave carbohydrate, a bit of a sugar hit because your body and brain hasn't connected. And it's like you did, you're doing this 
thing. But in reality, it only takes about 10 minutes to eat, you know, really. Like if you had to sit down and eat a sandwich mindfully, 10 or 15 minutes. So can you afford having a lunch break? You know, is it that efficient actually writing an email? Often when you're eating a sandwich and you're writing an email, you get to the end of the sandwich and you look and it's totally gone. You yeah. realize that you finished it. So um, you know, all of these are opportunities to bring mindfulness back to your day. And they might sound like minor things, but they're not. If you can't pay attention to your eating, you can't pay attention to other things because you're training that part of your brain to be distracted, mm. to be busy, to be doing two things at once. So many people, and I know we're on a podcast right now, but so many people that I, that I coach and train, especially the busy executives that I work with, they need to go to bed with a, a podcast, listening to something to distract themselves from their thoughts. There's mellow whispering sweet nothings in your ear <laughs> as you nod off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's one thing to listen to a meditation or something, but listening to it because they have to occupy their mind. So instead of like tuning into their own body and the sensations that are present in their body and their thoughts, they need to distract it with somebody else, something else. So all you're doing there is training your ability to be distracted more. Mm. Yes. Um, and, you know, I've heard that we're in the middle of this attention crisis. And, mm. you know, I, I think what I like about the definition that you shared from the World Health Organization is around that disconnect and mm. um, how just how important connection is for human beings. And, you know, from a leadership perspective is I, I think connection starts with um, the connection between a leader and, and a staff member and, you know, are they being present in that? Mm. Um, I think it goes back even further than that, to be honest. It goes back to connection with self. Yes. First of all. So if you ask me what I do, to be honest, in the coaching work that I do, I connect people to themselves first. So mind-body connection, and then that translates outwards. So even with emotional intelligence, often when I ask the question around emotional intelligence and I might be in a, a seminar, so what is emotional intelligence? Most people will put up their hand and say, oh, it's about reading the room. It's about understanding other people. It's about understanding other people's behaviors and you know, what they do. But let's rewind a little bit. The first step of emotional intelligence is understanding you, your behaviors, your patterns, your emotional uh, responses. So it starts with you. So that deeper connection with self. I love that you use the word connection, but the connection starts with you first and how that interacts with others. Mm, it's a great point actually I remember when I was doing my uh, master practitioner training with NLP and mm. um, it was you cannot recognize emotions in others that you don't actually recognize within yourself and so yes. yeah you're absolutely right the more that I can be in touch with myself the more that I can then observe that and be aware of that and also be aware of what am I seeing in others versus what am I what project what am I projecting onto others that I, I right. then see or your perception of the situation, definitely. And yeah. knowing what knowing what pushes your buttons, you know, knowing what actually triggers you, knowing what what emotional responses you get triggered by, because often we project that onto others without realizing it, or we perceive the situation very different to what we actually what is the real situation. So definitely yeah. that connection starts with you and that self-aware getting back to that self-awareness again starts with you. Yeah, for sure. Gosh, Mello, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff. It's, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work with leaders in that I'm feeling exhausted. I think I've got one question to ask you. Um, I've got loads of questions, but there's one more <laughs> I'm going to ask you for this podcast. 
And that is how much does the narrative impact or affect our workplace or the management of our workplace stress? And what I mean by that is when I say, how are you doing? I either get good, which is vanilla, or I get busy or I get, um, you know, I'm exhausted or there's just a lot going on right now. And I can't help but think the language actually exacerbates Mm. the the workplace stress. Can you hear your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's different levels of stress. I talk about this a fair bit sometimes. And and like there's everyday stress, right? So everyday stress is what drives us, motivates us, helps us achieve our goals. So we need a, a certain amount of stress. That's healthy stress, you know, you stress. Often, if you ask somebody how you are, if they're in that mode there, I call that the green zone in many in many ways, they'll they'll just answer, I'm busy, but all good, you know, everything's fine. So they'll they'll answer busy plus positive. That'd be a positive outcome. If you ask somebody that's in the chronic stress sort of zone where they're starting to get a bit overwhelmed, they're overstimulated, not sleeping at night, deadlines to meet, and they're, they're feeling busy, so they're more in the yellow sort of chronic stress zone, they'll probably answer also, I'm busy plus a negative. I'm busy. It's just so much to do at the moment. I'm under the pump. It's a bit manic at the moment. So that that to me is an orange flag already. That's already like, okay, they're not coping if they're saying that. And if they say the word overwhelmed, you mentioned before, that's a word that I hear very often in the workplace. That's usually a sign. If they vocalize that, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, it's usually a sign they're not coping. They're actually mm. struggling and they're tipping that balance into you know mental health, poor mental health. So worth checking up on that if they say that or if you hear yourself saying that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's one of the words I hear in the psychiatric clinics very often. I'm like, it was just overwhelming. How did you end up in the clinic? Oh, I was just overwhelming. It was just too much, too much, too much, too much. So that's where I see that. Then we tip the balance over into you know what's called the allostatic load or the allostatic stress. So that chronic stress has now turned into like fatigue, exhaustion. You know, it hasn't quite got the full burnout yet. So it's just before that. And now they'll say something like, I'm tired. You know, how are you? I'm tired. You know, they'll mm. answer, I'm tired. And then you know that they're, they're, they've tipped the balance of being just stressed. Now they're actually getting tired and they're things that normally could do, like we said before, are harder. And then if you ask somebody that's, you know, on that burnout scale, um, yeah, how are you going? How's things? And they say, I'm done. Like, I'm just finished. I'm done. You know, they've sort of tipped that balance right onto the other side there. So, you know, the narrative is a big one and it's what we tell ourselves in many ways. And if we can shift that language, what I do in that green zone there is like, instead of saying, I'm stressed, I'm busy, like excited, like excitement is also, you know, a stress response in many ways. You know, you might be doing a big talk so you can change the language a little bit. You know, I had one client who was, a very manic general manager guy, his language in his emails to me was like, um, oh, Melo, I can't see you today. I'm under the pump. It's too crazy. It's, And, you know, the people around him felt that too. So I started working with him to change the language, you know, mm-hmm. to change the, the narrative. And it was amazing how it actually changed his mindset and the people around him too because it's also yeah. contagious for the people around you. Yes. Uh, and it just becomes the, well, if I'm not busy, am I what lazy it's like the the opposite of busy is is lazy or it's you know you're not doing your your best or whatever it is it's so like I just love your response that was so good because I think it it gives leaders more awareness of what they're saying and how that's projecting and what that Mm. means for everyone else but also like the examples that you've just given are really good indicators for leaders to go oh okay i'm i'm done 
that's that's actually something that needs to be you know explored a little bit further that more time in conversations where a leader says how are you and they go i'm exhausted or i'm done yeah. the last thing you want to do is go okay so um how are your stats going this <laughs> exactly month? you know how are you performing it's the it's that agility in conversations to go okay i'm going to scrap what i was coming in for mm. and because of the response to that one question i'm actually just going to do this completely differently yeah how can I support you? How can I help you? What can we do? All those sort of questions should go around. And that's just the vocalizing. If they vocalized it, it's normally five times that. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there's also behavioral things where they might socially withdraw. They don't show themselves on the team's meetings, mm. you know, their appearance. There's also, you know, emotional signs and nonverbal signs that you see. But if they're actually vocalizing it, it's usually five times the thing that they're saying. Yep. Okay, so just on that, and I know that was going to be the last question, but I have. <laughs> so if if leaders have, are getting that response from their people, um, it is not their responsibility to solve the problem. So because I think a lot of leaders go far out. If yeah. I ask that question, if I if I stop and I explore this a little bit further, I'm not I'm not qualified. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my equipped. depth, and so there's mm. not the no one expects leaders to solve the problem. What is it that they can do? All they can do, some of us aren't qualified as leaders to actually you know, have the mental health conversation, to feel comfortable around that, especially if they're talking anything around suicide or you know, some of those self-harm things. We're not qualified for that. But everybody, including leaders, is qualified to listen, like really listen and just be there, be present with that person 100%. Like I said before, the best compliment you can give somebody is your full attention. You know, so put your pen down, put the mouse button down, turn towards that person and listen. And then from that information you get from listening, then work out what's the next step. Do they need to speak to the AP provider? Do they need to seek help elsewhere? Do we need to refer them on from there? And then obviously check in with them later on, like a week later, how's things going you know, from what you've done? Have you, you know, seen the psychologist or have you seen the EAP provider? But the first step is listening. We're mm. all qualified to listen, all of us. And that's all you got to do. Mm. And yeah, the rest will simple. come. Oh, what a fabulous conversation. Um, thank you so much um, for, for sharing that. Um, I um, will include your, your link to your book um, on burnout and finding the balance as well as your profile um, on LinkedIn. I have no doubt that, you know, there will be people interested in pursuing the conversation with you further. I think it's super topical. I don't think we can talk about it enough, um, but I really want to thank you for giving up your time to have a conversation today, Mello. Thank you, Shelley. It was really great. We, as we see, we could, we could speak forever. We might have to do another one in the future, part two. <laughs> <laughs> would say so awesome thank you um, and for everyone listening um, thank you so much for joining I look forward to another dynamic leader conversation with you soon thanks again for listening to another episode of the dynamic leader there is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed it is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, 
why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.